Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. I think we're supposed to venture into the vault, but I'm hearing some odd creaking and squealing of metal in there that is giving me pause. Ah, uh, yes. We are going to be talking about Talos, the uh, the automaton of, uh, of Greek myth in this episode. This, I have to say, uh, an episode that aired January 2nd, 2018, one of my favorite episodes of 2018. I think one of mine, too. This one was a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, who would have thought that the best traditions of thinking about robot life go all the way back to ancient Greece? It's true. Let's pull the plug out and let that ecor drain. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about themes of technology in ancient Greek literature. But before we get there, we have to go to the slightly related, actually very related (laughs) topic of what's your favorite killer robot movie, Robert? Oh, well... You know, outside of some of the obvious choices from, uh, say, you know, the Terminator movies. Or right. The, Can't say Terminator. Or, or even the RoboCop movies. You get into a weird territory. Is it a robot? Is it a cyborg? Right? I would say my easy pick is the killer red robot Maximilian from the Disney movie The Black Hole. Oh, yeah? I've never seen it. Oh, he's terrifying because he just he floats around. Feet do not touch the, the surface of the ship. And uh, has this menacing red visor that just peers into your soul and has these spinning blade hands that it utilizes to, at one point, murder Anthony Perkins in cold blood. No, Anthony yeah. Perkins? Yeah. Well, after Psycho, I guess he had it coming. Well, no, in this movie, it was great. In this movie, you felt sorry for him. Uh, if he'd showed up, shown up in Psycho, well, then that would, that would be a different matter altogether. Now, I have probably got to go to the movie Chopping Mall, which oh, yes. is an 80s uh, robot slasher set in a shopping mall at night where security robots go haywire. I think their computer gets struck by lightning or something, mm-hmm. and then they decide, well, they've got to kill all the people who are hanging out overnight in the, in the mall. That is a delicious movie. Yeah, but also, how about you? Brenner in the original Westworld. Oh, yeah. He's super menacing. I'm up until his face falls off, I guess. But Before Westworld was like a thoughtful HBO series, it was a cheesy old movie with Yul Brenner pulling guns on people. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was terrifying. He, I mean, Yul Brenner was always entertaining, but it, he was kind of made to play a killer emotionless robot. I would say some of the best killer robot stuff in movies, when killer robots are scary— the fact that they're scary comes not from malice or ill intent like it might in a monster or in a human villain or something like that. The great thing about a killer robot in a scary movie is that its terror is derived from the fact that it has no will of its own or no intention. It's just sort of like a an efficient, emotionless killing machine. Yeah, all it has is directive, and it uh, it absolutely will not stop until it achieves it. Now, we obviously think of themes like this emerging in the fiction primarily of the 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we think science fiction in earnest really shows up the way we know it now. I know you had Jules Verne before that, but the 20th century is when you really start getting your killer robots everywhere. But today we're going to go back. Oh, yes. We're going to go back to a fabulous example of what is perhaps the very first killer robot uh, that humans ever dreamt up. And it, it's not from the 20th century. It's not from the 19th or even the 18th. It is from the ancient Greek world. And its name is Talos. Talos. 
Yes, the man of bronze, the bronze automaton. I want to quote from uh, Edith Hamilton's version of the classic story of the quest for the Golden Fleece. Now, Edith Hamilton's classic mythology, this is a great old textbook on Greek mythology. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, it's just wonderful to leaf through. Yeah, every personal library needs a copy of this. Uh, But uh, So she does a really good job of taking disparate elements of story traditions and sort of pasting them together into composite synthetic versions of the stories. So I want to sort of summarize the quest for the Golden Fleece. You can't hit all the great points, but here's how it goes. So you've got this young hero, Jason, and in order to reclaim his rightful kingdom from a usurper king, Jason is on a quest to retrieve a sacred artifact, which is a golden fleece from a magic ram that saved the life of a Greek prince long ago. And he's accompanied by a crew of other heroes known as the Argonauts. This is where we get Jason and the Argonauts. Mm And on the way to retrieve the artifact, he has to face many trials with his companions. One of the trials that uh, Hamilton talks about is how Hercules is on the on the ship with him, and Hercules' friend gets yanked down into a spring by this nymph-type creature, and Hercules is roaming around the woods trying to find him and eventually gets lost and wanders off. So you would think, you know, you got Hercules in your crew, you're set, but it turns out he's easily distracted. <laughs> yes. Another trial is when Jason and the Argonauts have to battle with evil harpies on behalf of this wretched old man who has the gift of future sight. So the old man is a prophet, but he's been cursed so that anytime he goes to eat some food, harpies zoom down down out of the sky and they, they terrorize him and they foul the food he's eating. I'm not sure exactly what they do to it. It's They're described as foul smelling, hmm. so maybe they just put him off it. Well, I'm, I'm just imagining just a, a tussle of harpy feathers and and harpy excrement and, mm-hmm. and just all manner of nastiness. Yeah, and so they have to sail their ship through some crashing rocks and all, all kinds of stuff like that. But eventually, Jason is able to capture the artifact, the Golden Fleece, but only with the help of the powerful witch princess Medea, uh, one of the greatest sorceresses in all of fiction. Medea is awesome. So uh, she has fallen in love with him, but not entirely of her own volition because she was compelled into love by an arrow of Cupid because Aphrodite intervened on his behalf. So after they get the fleece, Jason and Medea and the rest of the crew of the Argo are sailing toward Jason's home. And on the journey, they pass by the island of Crete. And here I want to read a direct quote from Hamilton's telling of the story. Next came Crete, where they would have landed but for Medea. She told them that Talus lived there, the last man left of the ancient bronze race, a creature made all of bronze except one ankle, where alone he was vulnerable. Even as she spoke, he appeared, terrible to behold, and threatened to crush the ship with rocks if they drew nearer. They rested on their oars, and Medea, kneeling, prayed to the hounds of Hades to come and destroy him. The dread powers of evil heard her. As the bronze man lifted a pointed crag to hurl it at the Argo, he grazed his ankle, and the blood gushed forth until he sank and died. Then the heroes could land and refresh themselves for the voyage still before them. Now, this is only one telling of the story of Talos, the the mighty man of bronze. And to get a little bit more detail, I think we should look at a translation of the text of the story as told by Apollonius of Rhodes in his work, The Argonautica, which is one version of, of this story I've just been talking about. Yes, Apollonius writes, 
He was of the stock of bronze, of the men spring from ash trees, the last left among the sons of the gods, and the sons of Kronos gave him to Europa to be the warder of Crete, and to stride round the island thrice a day with his feet of bronze. Now in all the rest of his body and limbs he was fashioned of bronze and invulnerable, but beneath the sinew of his ankle was a blood-red vein, and this, with its issue of life and death, was covered by a thin skin. Now, so you've got a bronze guy. You got a bronze guy, and he has this weak point in his 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 ankle. Very much like Achilles, the legend of Achilles, also weak only in his ankle yeah, or because, in his heel, right? Because that's where he was held uh, as he was dipped into uh, into the the river Styx. But we get a different explanation for the vulnerability in this story. Now it's a technological vulnerability. Yeah, and I think this this is the key, and this is something we're going to discuss over and over again in this episode. Is that it, uh, it's easy to just dismiss this tale because Talos does not have other adventures. He basically shows up kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons random encounter and he's dispatched. The main story about him is his death. Right. And you can also say, well, he, he sounds a lot like Achilles. It's kind of like a bronze. It's like a robot knockoff of Achilles to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. But when you really start digging into it, the technological aspect of this is, is absolutely phenomenal. Now, one great source on the tradition of, of the Talos character is the author Merlin Paris, who wrote the article Talos and Daedalus, a review of the authorship of The Abominable Bronze Man in the Ceylon Journal of Humanities from 1971. And this is a fantastic article, so we, we'll bring him up several times throughout this episode. Now, one thing Paris points out is that not all versions of the Talos story describe Talos exactly the same. Sometimes his body has different features or characteristics depending on who the author is. Yes, and as we'll discuss, even the size fluctuates. Right. Uh, One thing we always have to remember with Greek myths in particular is that they evolve. I mean, all myths are subject to, to change over time and over place depending on who's telling the tale and, and when they are telling it. Uh, and, and that's certainly the case with Greek mythology. So, for example, Apollonius of Rhodes, uh, who was writing in the 3rd century, had said that this this vein, this vein inside him, was only uh, apparent under the sinew of his ankle, right? The right. one ankle. Yeah, but then there are other accounts that say that it stretched from the neck down to both ankles. So that was Apollodorus, right? Yes. So this vein is full of what's known as ichor, which in Greek myth is the lifeblood of the gods. Sometimes it's described as golden instead of red, though in most of the stories I've seen about Talos, it is described as red. Mm-hmm. In the Iliad, when the gods, for example, Aphrodite, are cut or stabbed with spears, they can be harmed, their skin can be pierced, and they leak fluid, but the fluid they leak is not blood, but ichor. So to quote from the Iliad, quote, the point tore through the ambrosial robe which the graces had woven for Aphrodite and pierced the skin between her wrist and the palm of her hand so that the immortal blood or ichor that flows in the veins of the blessed gods came pouring from the wound. For the gods do not eat bread nor drink wine, hence they have no blood such as ours and are immortal." I love the conflicting ideas here, like the Mm -hmm. idea that the god can be injured and the god can bleed, but they are in some sense immortal. They have bodies, they can leak fluid, they can be hurt, but the idea of immortality is somehow more bound up in what goes into their body and what comes out of it than what can be done to it. Yes, and it's it's important to note here that this does not mean that Talos is a god. All, All accounts indicate that he is a 
manufactured thing. But of course, the manufacturer changes depending on the different tales. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but still, he is he is like this artificial creation that has been filled with life because he's been filled with Ecor. So the Ecor maybe for for the bronze man Talus is not essential to his nature, but is something that has been used to give him the properties he has. Maybe the properties of life or animation, right? Yeah, this it's the gasoline for your large bronze uh, death golem. <laughs> the, the oil in the car. Mm-hmm. Now, this makes me think about how both monsters and robots in fiction are often identified by the different color of their blood. I think about, like, the aliens in the X-Files that have green blood uh, or, you know, it's not just the X-Files. I think about, uh, there's a great scene in Fright Night where there's a guy who you just think is like a normal vampire's familiar, but then he starts bleeding and I think his blood is green. Is mm-hmm. that right? I believe so, yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's it's all, the, all, all over the place in fiction, but it's not just monsters, it's robots too. I think about Ash spraying the milk-white blood everywhere in Alien when he gets bashed up. And I think this goes to the deep metaphorical understanding we have of blood as like the essence of a person in the sense that close family members, which in material terms are those animals with which you share the most essential genetic similarity, are, quote, your blood. Indeed. And, uh, of course, it's also worth noting that I, I believe film ratings sometimes come into play. I've, I've read that if you have a humanoid spouting green, pink, white, or, say, amber blood, you can still earn yourself a PG-13. But if, it's, uh, if, the, if the stuff is red, then you're probably going to get an R. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, well, I wonder if that played a role in its uh, in its use in the Iliad. But no, the Iliad's full of blood. They didn't shy away from blood there. Oh, well, without getting into the whole issue of, of colors in the, the works of Homer, right? That's an entirely different topic. Maybe for a different day. Mm-hmm. So – Talos. So we've got him as this bronze man made of bronze. He's got this vein of ichor somewhere in his body going down to his ankle or both ankles that contains this lifeblood or essential ethereal liquid inside the gods that has animated this bronze creature to some extent. And he stands on the island throwing rocks at any ship that tries to dock. We saw in Apollonius's tale that he apparently runs around the island of Crete three times a day. Three times a day. And which I is w- impossible. <laughs> I was t- Tempted to do the math on it, or I, I was actually kind of surprised that nobody else has a, a paper out there breaking down exactly how fast and how large Talos would have to be to pull this off. But that's not the only thing that Talos can do. So he can hurl rocks at your ship, but what if you come ashore? Does he still pose a risk then? Oh, does he ever? He has this, this beautifully grotesque superpower of being able to apparently jump into the fire, heat uh, its body up and then come out and embrace uh, the enemy. So he, so the enemy soldiers say they've landed. Here comes Talos leaping out of the fire, applies a huge bear hug, and just immolates you in his embrace. And according to— that, uh, that's, that's sick. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and it gets even better. Uh, according to, to Merlin Paris, uh, some argue that the term sardonic grin uh, may have originated with the victims of uh, this death. This, at least according to Simonides, who wrote that Talos resided in Sardinia before coming to Crete. And he'd already destroyed many of the Sardinians, presumably leaving them with peeled back a peeled back grin of a of a you know of, of the burnt dead. Yeah, the idea of the grimace, and and this is a big question actually in the the etymology of this term. Where does the idea of the sardonic grin come from, mm-hmm. or the the risus sardonicus, which I think actually literally means sardonic laughter, not sardonic grin? But the ideas get conflated in mm-hmm. the history of the terms. Um, 
so yeah, yeah, where does this idea come from? Now, another version I've heard, so one is that he is crushing the Sardinians and he's crushing them and burning them with his red-hot embrace and that in their death, their grimaces turn into grins. But then also uh, Paris talks about the idea that the grin goes to – the robot itself, right? Mm-hmm. That this that Talos would grin, have this creepy grin when he was hugging people <laughs> to death with his burning arms. Another version of the explanation for this, which is kind of a side note from Talos, but I thought it was interesting, so I should bring it up. No one knows for sure where it came from, but the idea of the sardonic grin has also been potentially traced to a totally different Sardinian threat. So a- ancient historians told these stories that on the island of Sardinia, the pre-Roman inhabitants had this ritual custom for dealing with criminals and for euthanizing elderly people who couldn't care for themselves. And what they would do is they would drug them with an intoxicating poison that caused the victim's facial muscles to contract into a creepy grin and become paralyzed, hence the sardonic grin of Sardinia. And then while the victims were drugged out, they could be thrown off a cliff or beaten to death. (laughs) It started off sounding reasonably humane for the ancient world. And maybe it still is, depending on how you look at it. There's just not much that's reasonably humane in the ancient (laughs) world. But anyway, so in 2009, a study by scientists at the University of Eastern Piedmont in Italy claimed to trace this story, if true, to an herb native to Sardinia called the hemlock water drop wart, or enanth crocata, also known commonly as water celery. But this is not a good candidate to stick in your Bloody Mary, because the stem and the root of this plant are apparently a significant threat to fatal human poisonings. One example, sometime in the late 90s, a Sardinian shepherd committed suicide by eating water dropwort, and his corpse was apparently found grinning. Now, the name Enanth means wine flower, and crocata in particular has uh, apparently a, quote, paradoxical Swedish and pleasant taste and odor. And this makes it more dangerous than a lot of other plants, especially plants in the same genus, which are also poisonous but have a bitter taste, which kind of keeps you from eating too much of it. And because of its ability to cause the facial muscles to contract into the Rhizus sardonicus, and because Sardinia is the only place in the Mediterranean where this plant commonly grows, the researchers think that it is probably the Sardinian death herb from the ancient stories and thus the origin of the idea of the sardonic grin. Now, back to Talos, though. Okay. So, I'm sorry to take us off <laughs> No, no, this is a, it's a fascinating uh, diversion. Uh, but the, the, the bronze uh, killer awaits us. As we'll explore, there are two key origin stories for this mechanical marvel. Mm-hmm. So in some tales, he, in really most of the older tales, he was created by Hephaestus, the god of the forge. Right, the, the later known as Vulcan, mm-hmm. uh, the blacksmith god of Olympus. Yeah, the deformed uh, uh, god who, and, who, if you visit Birmingham, Alabama, you get to see uh, his likeness uh, on the horizon because they have the statue of Vulcan. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, in, it's interesting. It's one of the few, I guess, pagan uh, uh, tourist stops uh, in the American South. But in later tellings, uh, the inventor Daedalus constructs this artificial being. Oh, Daedalus. Yeah, the, the master inventor, the creator of the, the Minoan maze, the wings of Icarus, and other marvels. Right, the, the famed mythical inventor. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, but it, this is interesting as well because Talos, the 
the bronze automaton here curiously bears the same name as the inventor that Daedalus tried to murder out of jealousy uh, earlier on, pushing him out of a, out of a tower. Uh, although Athena saves uh, this uh, mortal Talus mm-hmm. by turning him into a partridge so he can fly away. Yeah, in his paper, Paris talks about the 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 number of stories along these lines, but it's like an Athenian tradition that Daedalus was in Athens and he had this pupil who was very talented and mm-hmm. he was a little too talented. And so <laughs> Daedalus got a little territorial, got a little jealous and pushed him off the Acropolis. Yeah, the, the original Talus, if we want to call him that, the mortal Talus, he's uh, attributed with, with inventing the saw. Oh, really? So, yeah, Daedalus is standing there. He's like, geez, you, uh, a saw, that's genius. Why didn't I think of that? I just want to push you out of a tower. <laughs> And he does. This is a great argument for not showing up your boss in a meeting or being exactly. too clever. You're going to get pushed out of a tower. You just know it's coming. Exactly. Uh, now, one last note about that talus, that original human talus uh, was apparently also known as Callus in some traditions. So there are some differences in the name. But anyway, so back to talus in the story of the Golden Fleece. So you've got Jason and the Argonauts and Medea especially. Now, in most of the good versions of the story, Medea is the one who takes him down, right? Right. And it in, in most of them, it has to do with the removing of a bronze nail from that ankle. Again, that weak point that's, uh, that's connected to the vein that runs all the way through Talus's body. Uh, she unplugs it. She unplugs the bronze nail, which causes uh, uh, the eker to pour out of his body, draining him of all life and movement. And there's actually a, a wonderful uh, vase, an Athenian vase from 400 BCE that illustrates this. And I'll make sure to include that image on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You should take a look at this because it's awesome. Talus is ripped. His, his pecs are like the size of cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, actually one thing that you might notice in this vase is that, so, okay, you've got a bronze man and he seems to be stumbling and falling down. But – He's the same size as all the other dudes around him. Which makes sense when you think about the the, the, the embrace, the, the deadly burning uh, bear hug of the giant. Exactly. So when I read this story in, the say, the version told by Apollonius of Rhodes, mm-hmm. I think of Talus as this hundred-foot-tall giant. And it seems that most modern commentators have just assumed him to be towering, to be a giant, like in the Ray Harryhausen movies. Right. Uh, where when you see Talus, he's this huge you know, Godzilla-like figure. But Paris points out that most of the ancient authors didn't describe him this way and that logically, like you're saying, he, he couldn't have been that much bigger than a man. How else could he do this, this heating embrace? heating, the the scalding, burning, roasting embrace. Now, one exception to this seems to be the author of the Orphic Argonautica, which is a different telling of the Argonautica, who called him, quote, a bronze thrice giant or tree giganta. Hmm. Uh, the line from there is, we suffered a great enemy on Crete when we observed a bronze giant who allowed no one to go into the harbor. So at least some ancient authors picked up on this idea that he was a giant, but it's not there in most of the stories. In most, he's more like the Tin Man or something, right. this very strong, powerful metal figure, but basically human-sized. Yeah, and, and uh, I believe there's also sometimes some crossover from uh, accounts of the Colossus of Rhodes. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, uh, literally a giant statue that stood as a sort of a guardian of, uh, of the harbor. Yeah. So, uh, wait a minute. we got to go back to how— 
Talos gets defeated in oh, the yes. stories. So there, there are four different versions of his death that seem to exist, but they all relate to draining the ichor out of the ankle. Mm-hmm. So in one, uh, uh, the hero uh, Poes shoots him in the ankle, which is I, is one I reject. That's no yeah. fun. Don't don't give this guy a chance to do it. It's this is a, a Medea's role, right? Right. So there's another one where Medea's tricks him into thinking she can make him immortal by pulling out the nail. Now this is a common trick up Medea's sleeve mm-hmm. because later in the same story, Medea also kills the usurper king by tricking him into thinking he can be immortal. Actually, not by tricking him, but she plays this wonderfully fatal and devious hoax on the daughters of the pretender king that Jason's trying to get his throne back from, uh, I believe his name is Peleus, right? So he, she goes to Peleus's daughters and says, hey, look, I can make an old lamb young again, or not, not, not a lamb, I guess, an old ram. And so she chops it up, puts it in boiling water, and does a spell to make a young lamb jump out. Mm-hmm. And then so Peleus's daughters are like, well, great, we're going to do that for dad. Happy birthday. <laughs> and so they chop him up, and they boil him, and they try to do the spell, and it doesn't work. She's something of an anti-hero, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, Medea, you got to feel for her. Like, mm-hmm. she's she's the tra- – I would say she's the tragic heroine, despite all of the killing she does. Yeah. The other two uh, versions of this relate to magical efforts on Medea's part, her hypnotic gaze, spells, or even uh, some sort of a magical potion, a, a drugging of Talus, if you will, that somehow make him stumble and rupture his ankle on a rock or or at least open him up for attack, allow her to move in and pull that nail from the membrane. I would say the actual text of the Argonautica is too good not to read. So I think we should read the section where Medea kills Talos. And side note, uh, this would be a good one to throw some drums over, some yeah. Conan the Barbarian drums. Exactly. So please, sub them in here. So Talos shows up on a cliff. He threatens to crush them with rocks, and Medea tells Jason and his men to back away from the shore and let her take care of it. And then the translation of what follows is by R.C. Seaton. And with songs did she propitiate and invoke the death spirits, devourers of life, the swift hounds of Hades, who, hovering through all the air, swoop down on the living. Kneeling in supplication, thrice she called on them with songs, and thrice with prayers, and, shaping her soul to mischief, with her hostile glance she bewitched the eyes of Talos, the man of bronze, and her teeth gnashed bitter wrath against him, and she sent forth baneful phantoms in the frenzy of her rage. Father Zeus, surely great wonder rises in my mind, seeing that dire destruction meets us not from disease and wounds alone, but lo, even from afar, maybe it tortures us. So Talos, for all his frame of bronze, yielded the victory to the might of Medea the sorceress. And as he was heaving massy rocks to stay them from reaching the haven, he grazed his ankle on a pointed crag, and the ichor gushed forth like melted lead, and not long thereafter did he stand towering on the jutting cliff. But even as some huge pine, high up on the mountains, which woodmen have left half-hewn through their sharp axes when they returned from the forest, at first it shivers in the wind by night, then at last snaps at the stump and crashes down. So Talos for a while stood on his tireless feet, swaying to and fro, when at last, all strengthless, fell with a mighty thud. 
Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. That is a robot death scene if ever I have read one. That's better than the T-1000 melting. That's better than any of it. Uh, and I should also note it's better than what we see in the 1963 film Jason and the Argonauts with the, those wonderful Ray Harryhausen effects because in that one, Jason kills Talos rather than Medea. Ah, uh, sexist retcon. Yeah. And it's boring too. Jason just runs up to his foot and pulls the thing out and then all the, the fluid gushes out of him and he falls over. It, why? I mean, <laughs> you, you got to give Medea some spells to do. I agree. She's in the movie. You might as well use her for that purpose. Is she not in the movie at that point? I don't right. remember. She, I believe she shows up after the Talos encounter, and okay. they encounter Talos not on Crete, but on some island of bronze or something. Ah, uh, well, that's a bummer. You got to get the Hounds of Hades. <laughs> you do. The Hounds of Hades, that's a great line. Now, I love the way Medea does this because she's like, of course, you got Jason and all his meathead buddies. That I guess they probably just want to rush in there and slash him up with swords. But Medea's like, hold on, I got this. And that's actually possibly there in her name because as Adrian Mayer points out, the name Medea seems to be derived from a Greek word that means to plan or to devise, whereas she's surrounded by these heroes who are, who are powerful because they're strong and brave. She's powerful because she's cunning and she can think it out. So she's definitely one of the the, the really cool aspects of this story. Yeah. The other, of course, being the giant bronze robot. Yeah, so where does Talos come from in the literary tradition? Like, wh- where, wh- whence this bronze sentinel? We're going to answer that question when we come back. <laughs> All right, we're back. So before we proceed here, I want to read this excellent quote from uh, Merlin Paris in that uh, Talos and Daedalus article that we've been uh, discussing Mm -hmm. that really drives home why we're doing an episode about this myth to begin with. Quote, Talos was not a mortal creature like the rest of them, but a product of the bronze founder's art. In other words, we have in him a robot, perhaps man's first conception of such, not only in the outer form, but replete with an imaginary mechanical device which was thought to activate him. And in this capacity, he does not draw his plausibility, as the other monsters did, from the wild and fantastic natures that belong to prehistory. Rather, he is remarkably futuristic, anticipating the scientific possibilities of the present age, and even then, belonging more with the bizarre imaginings of the new mythology of science fiction than with the mechanisms created and used in real life. I think something that's interesting about looking at the fantastical literature of the ancient world is that a lot of times we have trouble discerning the difference between what was to them sort of uh, magic fantasy and what was to them their equivalent of science fiction as we would imagine it today because to us it all looks ancient. It's all, you know, because their forward looking is still sort of backward to us. But I think there's a lot of literature in the ancient world that could quite well be characterized as sort of like science fiction. I think sometimes when you read... For example, the Book of Revelation or other apocalyptic literature, we read that now as featuring as, as kind of like uh, epic fantasy or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think from the time it was created, the attitude toward it would have been more like our ideas of like dystopian future sci-fi. I think that's a strong point, yes. Now, at this point, we want to just discuss some of the different versions of the tale relating where – 
Talos came from because they're important in breaking down what this tale says about technology. So the first one that we've been talking about a good bit has been the story told by Apollonius of Rhodes in the Argonautica, right? Yeah, this is the idea that he was a survivor of the Age of Bronze. And this is something that, that Merlin Paris viewed as a, quote, dubious tradition. Right. Uh, so the Bronze Age we're discussing here, this is not – an historical time period. This is not the technological Bronze Age, though we will talk about that later. Yeah, what we're discussing here is one of the poet Hesiod's five races, a race of humans created by Zeus from ash trees, violent, clad in bronze, destroyed in the flood of of Deculian, who is the son of Prometheus, and uh, who is now confined to the, quote, dank house of Hades. Hades' house. I didn't even know it was dank. Yeah, it's dank down there. Uh, So this would frame Talos as the last bronze man, given by Zeus to Europa to protect her children, and then given to Minos to guard Crete. However, there seems little to suggest that anyone else viewed the bronze men as actual men of bronze, and Paris suspects that this was Apollonius's invention. Okay, so we're seeing sort of a, a mishmash of different ideas here. You've got Hesiod's bronze age of, of creatures, these human creatures, who are not literally made of bronze, but but it seems like Apollonius is sort of taking that idea and applying it to a creature that he he does say explicitly is made of bronze. Yeah. Again, myths evolve and myths are retold and retold and changed. So if he's made of bronze, who made him? Well, in the most popular version of the tale, as we've discussed, Talos is the crea- is a creation, a machine of some sort born from the forge. And in the earlier traditions, the creator is Hephaestus, a.k.a. Vulcan, god of the forge. In Homer's The Iliad, we're told that Hephaestus creates golden females and wheel-driven tripod stools to serve the table of the gods. And he's also the one who forged the, the armor or the armors of Achilles. Hmm. Simonides, among others, identify Talos as a creature of Hephaestus. Okay, so created by the gods, that sort of takes away to some extent for me the sci-fi nature of of the creature, right? Yeah. If it's an animated statue of bronze, but it's created by the gods, it seems like its nature is essentially magical, right? Yeah. Now, Paris reminds us that the association here might have been that Talos was a creation in the art of Hephaestus, perhaps by another. Uh, and I suppose this would be like using satanic magic to make a monster, right? Who is, who's the, the, the master of the monster? Who's the true monster maker here? Is it the wizard or the devil? Over time, though, we see this growth of association with Daedalus. And I think this is where we really can get into some fun questions about technology. So in, in time, Daedalus comes to serve as a human represent, representative of the skills and crafts that Hephaestus rules over. So the mythological inventor, again, he's said to have had walking statues of his own. He created the Minoan maze and crafted the wings of Icarus. He was a, a master of at least art, if not technology. Yeah, and usually in the traditions, both, or at least over time, both. Mm -hmm. And Paris makes a lot of this history of associations between Daedalus and statuary, that he was a great innovator in lifelike sculptures. For example, Paris points out that Diodorus writes, quote, in the sculptor's art, he, Daedalus, so far excelled all other men. The statues he made were like human beings. They could see, they said, and walk. And in a word, preserved so well the composition of the whole body that his handiwork seemed to be a living creature. So if we're to view this skeptically, 
it just sounds like he's he's an accomplished sculptor and can make lifelike sculptures. Right, but this does seem to be taken literally all over the place. Like mm-hmm. there are, are Platonic dialogues where Socrates, and it's there in the Euthyphro and it's there in the Meno, I think. There are Platonic dialogues where Socrates talks about Daedalus's statues literally walking away. Mm-hmm. So he'll use them as a metaphor for something. It's like, don't let this thing get away from you like Daedalus's statues walking off from the workshop. But the idea of the innovation of lifelike poses in artistic uh, sculpture does make me think about how when you look at Stone Age figurines, uh, maybe I just haven't seen enough of them, but almost all the ones I can think of seem to be posed with arms at their sides, almost like corpses. They don't seem to be in action. Even the Lowenmensch is like this. Mm -hmm. All the Venus figurines, the Lowenmensch, I'm just racking my brain for Stone Age statues that really have much much action or, or stuff going on as if they're alive. But once you get closer to the modern age, once you get the empires of Egypt and elsewhere, I guess later in the Stone Age and into the Bronze Age, you start to see more figurines of humans animated with action like the striding figurines of ancient Egypt. Robert, I know you, you've seen these, right, where the, you, their legs are clearly like walking. They're like the walk sign on the street. Yes, walking like an Egyptian, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you add to this, Paris says, the Athenian tradition about Daedalus that we talked about earlier, which to remind you is that he once had a young pupil named Talos or Kalos, who was so talented that Daedalus got really jealous, pushed him off the Acropolis to his death, uh, and then for this crime, Daedalus was banished to Crete. And then meanwhile, Paris notes that there are these traditions suggesting that the ancient Greeks knew of historical taloi, the plural of talus, in places like Attica and Sardinia, which were not actual robots but bronze statues set up on rocky coastlines as figures of apotropaic magic, meaning warding off magic, like gargoyles driving away Hmm. evil forces and beings. And Paris mentions the idea that there could have been such a figure once posed on the Acropolis, which fell off. And so for Paris, it seems like these disparate narrative traditions and historical memories sort of get blended together into the idea that Daedalus created Talos, not just as a bronze statue, but as an animated, living, walking bronze robot. And I have to say, this is the version of the tale I like the most. I like the idea that that uh, Daedalus is perhaps using the the craft and the power of Hephaestus, but he's creating a thing himself. Yeah. Oh, it's much better if it's created by humans instead of created by the gods, because if it's created by the gods, like we said, it's magic. If it's created by humans, this is sci-fi. Now, of course, if it's sci-fi, one thing we know from sci-fi is you've got to give a plausible pseudoscientific explanation for why things work, right? You can't just invoke magic. You've got to give some kind of chemical or material explanation for the technology. Well, yeah, and we have this idea that perhaps the inventions of Daedalus are powered by quicksilver. Mm. And this, uh, Paris says, he suspects that Sophocles was the one who managed to steer the tradition towards Daedalus and this idea of, uh, of quicksilver as the, the really the animating. Uh, now, you can see why that would be the case because if you've ever seen Quicksilver, it's got this kind of dancing, dancing jiggling quality mm-hmm. that makes it look as if it's quick, as if it's alive. And so this provides an interesting chemical substitute to the mythological magical concept of Ecor, the lifeblood of the gods. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss technology and Talos. All right. We're back. 
Now, we've already talked about the Bronze Age uh, as defined as one of uh, Hesiod's five ages. Right, the mythological Bronze Age. But right. what about the technological Bronze Age? Yeah, this this is where we get into some really interesting uh, technological uh, explanations here. So the Bronze Age generally covers the period of Greek history from 3200 BCE to 1200 BCE. And we know that they used other metals during this time, gold, silver, lead, tin, electrum, and even iron on rare occasions. Bronze, however, was the predominant metal of choice for weapons, tools, vessels, and statuettes. Right. So what exactly did it mean for this robot to be composed of bronze as opposed to any other thing that he could have been composed of in the story? Well, for starters, it means that... uh, He's composed of bronze, which is an alloy, <laughs> which uh, is 90% copper and 10% tin. Yeah, so for thousands of years before the Bronze Age, people had been making crafts out of copper. Copper was a metal you could find in the rocks, but copper was soft and easily deformed. You can't make a sword out of copper because, you know, you clash against a shield or something is just going to bend or break. So the alloy with tin changed all that and left us with bronze, which is a metal that changed the world. Yeah, it was the hardest and strongest metal at their disposal, and could, they could form complex shapes with it. Plus, there were no production obstacles uh, for, the, for preparation because, uh, the, and we're talking the casting and the hammering of bronze, all of this was fully mastered at the time. This was, this was an age of peak bronze technology. Yeah, and bronze was important. It was a major innovation in the history of technology because it meant we suddenly had access to hard objects that could be formed into blades and precast shapes that wouldn't chip or shatter under impact and could hold a sharp edge after heavy use. Iron, of course, later would be even stronger, but before people figured out the process for drawing iron out of its ore at scale, bronze was the best humankind had. And I've even read, I know in the past, that bronze working may have been one of the first real drivers of long-distance trade because sources of tin were very rare, and it often had to be imported to the Mediterranean or the Mesopotamian empires from somewhere far away. So you might have, you, you might think, did bronze create the foundations of globalism? Also, just a side question, I wonder why it is that so many technological revolutions seem based on the creation of blades and cutting materials. Well, well, I think there's there's an answer there that that relates to the, the basic uh, nature of humanity. Well, yeah, obviously one of them is the idea of weapons. Mm-hmm. But I think it actually goes deeper than that because I think it's almost as if blades, by being able to cleave naturally adhering materials – represent the very essence of technological power in the natural world, which is the transformation of things. By cutting a thing, you change its nature Uh and you shape it to what you want. Now, that could be changing the nature of a live person into a dead person, but it could also be changing the nature of a piece of wood into a building material that you can easily work with or any number of things like that. Now, some of you might be saying, all right, Robert and Joe, you're you're, you're chewing more than you bit off here. But I want to add that in the book, The Robot, The Life Story of a Technology by Lisa Knox, the author points out that despite the imaginative and symbolic nature of tales such as this, we shouldn't dismiss connections between myths and the history of technology because if we, if we look closely, we can derive clues about people's attitudes toward technology, toward tool making and the use of tools. Mm-hmm. Joan R. Mertens in Greek 
bronzes in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, writes that Talos illustrates a recurring trope in Greek myth, the endowment of works of art with animate being. We see it uh, in the bull Daedalus makes for uh, Pasiphae, as well as such notable myths as Pandora and Pygmalion. Quote, in the hands of an inspired craftsman, the proper combination of imitation and imagination could result in a creation of extraordinary potential. The Talos myth reminds us also that these creations were always made to serve a purpose. In the case of the giant, to guard the island of Crete. Here again, we've got an author assuming it's a giant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of impossible to resist that. But yeah, I, I see exactly what's going on here. Uh, uh, Mertens is, is drawing this connection. Uh, between the creative power of human beings and the, the idea that you could actually create something animated, something that's alive. Uh, and we totally see that the blurring of that distinction in what we were talking about with Daedalus, Daedalus creating lifelike statues and sculptures that at some point are seen to be literally alive. Now, one of the cool ways to look at the Talos myth is to see it as a metaphor for bronze versus iron, of the, the Bronze Age essentially uh, ending and the Iron Age dawning. Uh, so we, we've already discussed how in some versions of the myth, Talos is a gift given to King Minos uh, or another person of power. And in this, Knox points out that it, quote, reflects the way that bronze objects were reserved for the elite classes by the time the Iliad was first told. So the idea here is that the thing's size and power may imply the important civil and military applications of practical metallurgy. Hmm. And historians believe that uh, the invaders who attacked Greece from the north around 1200 BCE used iron weapons. Uh-oh. So it's possible that this, ta- this is a tale of the transition from bronze to iron. It's, a, it's showing that here's this marvelous weapon, this symbolic we- – this is basically bronze weaponry and bronze technology incarnate. And it crumbles uh, if it goes up against this new metal that is even uh, more potent. Well, all the more reason that you should always show Talos being destroyed by magic, the magic of Medea and the spells, mm-hmm. rather than by just uh, somebody shooting an arrow really good. Right. Uh, because if it's magic, that implies you know this higher advanced level, level of technology, the iron working of some other culture – is in fact magic to you. you. You can't figure it out, so it is a power beyond your reach. Now, there's, a, there's one more fascinating uh, technological angle on all of this, and it, it relates to that vein of Talos that we see. So here's a quote uh, once more from Joan uh, R. Mertens in Greek Bronzes. Quote, the myth also relates in an interesting way to the production of bronze objects. One's attention is drawn to the mention of a single vein running through Talos's body and plugged at the ankle, a detail that may possibly have been taken from the molds for casting by the lost wax technique. The lost wax technique. Yes. Now tell me about this, Robert. All right. So uh, first of all, I do want to mention that this is an interpretation that seems to originate with British classical scholar Arthur Bernard Cook, who lived uh, 1868 through 1952. Okay. But the idea here is that the functionality of Talos, the thing that gives him life, closely resembles the way you would make a bronze statue or at least a statuette. So here's the, the basic process of creating a bronze work, an inanimate one, mind you, not one that walks around. Mm-hmm. First of all, you prepare a core of soil and clay to mold into a figure. Then you layer that in wax. Then you add a third layer of fine clay 
baked with coarser clay, and this is where you'd sculpt in the details. Okay, so you've got like a clay mold, and then you put wax around the shape of it, and then another clay mold on top. Right, and when you sculpt in the details, that's of course affecting the wax underneath. Right. The wax is then left exposed at two points at the base. Think again to the idea that there are two veins uh, running down Talus' body. Uh, So this leaves us with a three-layer construction, core at the center, wax representation around it, and a clay mold over the wax with metal pins holding everything in alignment. Mm -hmm. And then once the clay dries... You heat it up, and the wax drains out of those holes. Ah, so then you've got a gap. Right, and then that's where you pour molten bronze. You pour that into the void, and then once it cools, you remove the clay, and the former wax details are now in bronze. So you re- then you, all you have to do is repair casting flaws, smooth and polish the surface, rework the details as needed, add additional embellishments as desired, like silver inlays, etc., and you have... Perhaps a being of bronze. So this means that the Talos figure as depicted in myth could be a direct metaphor for how bronze figures and figurines are created because it's got this vein for the wax to drain out. Uh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. It is. This idea that this, this thing is, is mirroring technology in more than one way. And perhaps this is in, in doing so in a way that would have been more obvious, I guess, to uh, people hearing the tale. Like it might have been kind of a joke, one can imagine, at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think very often the humor of ancient myths is lost on us because yeah. we don't get the context. <laughs> I mean, you can you can even imagine it being kind of like, hey, you know what this robot's Achilles heel was? What was his Achilles heel? Well, you just pulled the plug out and then everything drained out and he lost his, uh, his life force. And then Greek laughter ensues. It would be almost like if you – in, you know, thousands of years, we're looking back on some modern sci-fi story where somebody uh, undoes the killer robot by unplugging it from the wall. Yes. And they think that, like, that is a, wow, it has this long tail that's attached to the building it's in. And, like, what a strange mythological feature. But, in fact, it's just a joke about how easy it is to kill this thing by unplugging it. Yeah, they might think, well, this is a metaphor for how shackled to electricity and technology that people of the time felt and that— <laughs> and, and, you know, all of these various, uh, uh, you know, complex interpretations when it's really just a pluck. Now, speaking of, of modern times, what, if anything, can we draw from Talos about modern technology? Now, one thing to keep in mind in all of this, we've talked about how myths change over time. Uh, but, of course, society changes as well. And there are changes in like the moral and social dimension of how we treat our technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a sense in which technology influences the development of human ideology and culture, but it also goes the other way. Our ideas about technology come from our values and our the way our society is ordered and our beliefs. And what one example is, I wonder if you can draw broad parallels between the way technology is envisioned in free societies that value human rights versus slave-owning societies. And so, for example, in his book Politics, uh, Aristotle, written around 350 BCE, Aristotle is writing about the idea of possessions versus instruments, and he sort of characterizes slaves who are human beings as a type of instrument or tool. He says, quote, For if every instrument could accomplish its own work, obeying or anticipating the will of others, like the statues of Daedalus or the tripods of Hephaestus, which, says the poet, quote, 
of their own accord entered the assembly of the gods, if in like manner the shuttle would weave and the plectrum touch the lyre without a hand to guide them, chief workmen would not want servants nor masters slaves. So Aristotle believed that that slavery that uh, that slavery and being masters were a state of nature. Some people for him were born to be masters, and other people were born to be slaves. And this was a basic feature of the character of each person. Now, obviously, this goes completely in the face of our modern ideas about individual rights and equality and freedoms. This is the worst part of Aristotle to read, and yet. I, I wonder if it's illuminating about how perhaps a defender of a slave-owning culture like Aristotle and other Greek elites would have had to blur the line between human labor and inanimate technology in order to justify their enslavement of other humans. Like, But by being pro-slavery, they think of human labor and inanimate labor or at least as they'd imagine sort of robot labor in their fantasies to be sort of similar things. So we in the modern age would make a complete, you know, a very hard-line distinction between the labor of a human being and the workings of a mechanical robot. I'm not sure that Aristotle and many of the Greeks always would. So if they didn't necessarily make that distinction, how did it inform their myths and their ideas of automata and, uh, and robots and artificial beings? Well, this is interesting too when, uh, when you consider, if I remember correctly, our word robot even derives from a, an old uh, Slavic word, robota, which means a servitude. So you, could, you, you see this definite uh, connection between even our modern conception of a robot with slave, slavery or servitude. Yeah, I think maybe this very firm distinction we make between human beings and humanoid robots, thinking of them as very different, fundamentally different things – might come from our idea of human rights, right? Like if you are in a society that just does not really have the idea of human rights, you may may very well not have such a clear idea of the distinction between a human and a robot. Indeed. And I think we see this line blurred very much in the different traditions of how the Talos is represented. But what can uh, – I wonder what Talos can tell us about modern technology. Well, for one thing, it connects to ideas about the nature of a robot, like what is a robot or an android, and could a robot or an android ever attain the, the human kind of status? We, you know, we, we've just been talking about the distinction between humans and robots, can, but can a robot ascend the ladder and become something we would think of like a human? Is a self-moved but artificial creature capable of feeling? Now, Paris says that according to Aristotle, Daedalus's statues were able to, quote, carry out tasks which they had been instructed to do or had learned beforehand. So Paris says the deadly silence, the impersonal efficiency, the tireless thoroughness with which he executed his gory tasks mark him out as a machine without a speck of thought or feeling. And on Aristotle's idea that a statue, especially a robot, could carry out tasks which they had been instructed to do or had learned beforehand, this seems to imply that creative or novel behaviors are not possible for it, that the robot does as it's programmed, but that it can't 
achieve a, a will of its own, basically. But then at the same time, Talos is animated with Ikor for the ability to be self-moved like the gods. Uh, and the stories of Talos several times say he was, quote, alive and that he was, quote, fated to die. And that when he fell, he was not only deactivated or destroyed, but he died. Yet again, we're seeing the sort of blurring of the distinction between a human and a robot. We would talk about humans and robots much more differently, I think, in modern science fiction than the ancient Greeks did when they talked about their their humans and their gods and their robots. It seems like the lines are, are much blurrier all throughout. And certainly we see a lot of modern science fiction that re-blurs those lines. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of... Uh, of, uh, of narrative uh, fun to be had there. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, earlier we brought up the obvious robot of Yul Brynner in Westworld. But mm-hmm. in the new Westworld, I think it spends a lot of time sort of trying to re-blur these lines. We were talking about being blurrier in the ancient literature but becoming more distinct in the 20th century. If you've if you've got a Westworld where these characters are robots, but you're wondering, like, do they feel, is their labor more like human labor? Can they be exploited? Should they have some kind of rights of their own? It's almost like they're like we're reverting to this this miasma of confusion about the nature of beings that can move and act. Huh. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, another great show that comes to mind is, uh, I believe it's a Channel 4 AMC co-production, but Humans mm-hmm. explores a lot of this. They have these humanoid robots that are created uh, to serve us, and then they some of them become conscious, and complications arise. Yeah, and one thing we can definitely see being dealt with in this, these new versions of science fiction that are blurring the lines between humankind and robots is that unlike many of these Greek myths, they are much more informed by the idea of human rights. Uh, and so what happens if you re-blur the lines, but suddenly you've got a much higher standard for what humans deserve and how they should be treated? Hmm. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps it up for Talos, the man of bronze. Uh, however, I would, be, I would be remiss if I did not mention the giant warriors in Miyazaki's Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. Those are some am- amazing giant robots that uh, play an important role in that film. Yeah. And now I would say if you haven't seen Ray Harryhausen's Talos from uh, Jason and the Argonauts in 1963, I know we were hating on it because they, they take away Medea's role in it. Mm-hmm. But it's still a really cool stop motion. Animation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all, I mean, it's the same way with all of Ray Harryhausen stuff, right? If, if nothing else, seek out the Harryhausen sequences and watch them because Talos does look amazing in this. Yeah, it's like all the, the Harryhausen Sinbad movies. Usually the story is just garbage, but it's got some great monsters in it. Indeed. Now, I know we have some uh, some listener thoughts on this you'd like to share about Talos, about the nature of robots and machines. I'm sure that uh, anyone out there who was really inspired by the Bicameral Mind episodes, I'm sure you have some bicameral uh, thoughts on uh, this particular topic because mm-hmm. we're talking about statues coming to life. Uh, share those with us. We'd love to talk with you about them, either in email or, hey, over at the discussion module. That's our uh, Facebook group that you can join and interact not only with us, but plenty of other listeners to the show. And of course, you can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, our blog posts, videos, and links out to all those various social media accounts that we maintain. Big shout out to Alex Williams and Tari Harrison, our excellent audio producers. Uh, for for making us sound better than we are, as always. And of course, if you want to reach out to us, you can do so on email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.